Hello, my name is Rory Boyle. You might be able to tell from my name, my accent, or if you've seen me in real life, my red hair and freckles, that I am in many ways an Irish cliche. However, one of the stereotypes I don't live up to is something that is intricate to growing up on the Emerald Isle. You see, I was raised without any sort of religious influence. To give you an idea of just how unusual this is, a 2016 census revealed 78% of the Irish population identified as Catholic. Now, while this might seem like an overwhelming number, it's actually over 200,000 fewer than six years earlier in 2010, when the percentage stood at 88%. In fact, you don't have to look far to see religious influence waning. In 2015, same-sex marriage was legalized by 62% of Irish voters in a national referendum. And in 2018, 66% of Irish voters were in favor of repealing the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution, ultimately legalizing abortion. This overwhelming social change hasn't come out of nowhere. It would be impossible to ignore all of the abuse scandals that have plagued the Catholic Church in recent years, they have definitely led to countless people rethinking their faith. But I want to find out a little bit more about this new wave of thinking. What has led a country that was once living on a prayer to ultimately rejecting religion touching every part of its society? Why has this decline been so rapid? And how much power does the Catholic Church still hold over Irish society today? As somebody who didn't experience religious education in school, I need these questions answered. Educating children together was the norm in most countries, but the exception in Ireland. And I come in, if you like, or the Doki School Project comes in 50 years later in the 70s. And then, of course, once the troubles started in Northern Ireland, it was so obvious that the education system was a contributory factor, an education system which separated Catholics and Protestants from the earliest age, which was one of the reasons why a lot of people who had either came from a Catholic background or had no religion or had come from abroad didn't want to send their children to Catholic schools, but wanted to have a more liberal education. That's Sonia Highland, an education historian and co-founder of Educate Together, an educational charity founded in 1984 as the body for multi-denominational schools that opened after the establishment of Dorky School Project, Ireland's first non-denominational school, which I actually attended in the 1990s. For me, this conversation all starts with education because education is power and the Catholic Church have a firm grip on education in Ireland to this day. So I wanted to ask Onya what the options were for the families in Ireland who didn't identify as Catholic prior to the establishment of Educate Together and the Dorky School Project. I have met families of a Jewish background who were specifically told by the ministers for education at the time, well, there's plenty of Protestant schools, why don't you go to Protestant schools? So the solution for many families around the country was the local Church of Ireland school. The local Church of Ireland school had always catered for a variety of Protestant religions. You'd have Methodists, you'd have Presbyterians, you'd have Quakers. As the population balance began to change and more and more families, you know, became either non-religious or 
were coming in from other countries and were maybe Baha'is or Muslims or whatever, there was no provision for them. It became visible in an area like Dalkey in the 1970s. How did the Catholic Church react to all of this? The Catholic Church, they sat on the fence a little bit. They weren't visibly objecting to us, but we believed that behind the scenes they were using their pressure. And they had a lot of influence with government at the time, certainly to, and to put it mildly, to discourage the government from giving us sanction to start the school. And in fact, they didn't have to do very much because the Minister of Education was himself a very active member of a right-wing Catholic group, even more right-wing, I would imagine, than the bishops themselves and some of the civil servants as well. So we were blocked at every turn in the early years by bureaucracy, that there was a strong movement among a relatively small number of hardline Catholic people to prevent the school from starting. Can you talk a bit about public reaction and demand for this kind of school? Like, do you think the scandals really influenced people's thinking and their desire to send their children to these schools? As the scandals, the various scandals emerged, we began to see much stronger support and demand for such schools. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. People became much more willing to be supportive of us. And then, of course, when the LBGT issues began to emerge, they were certainly in the earlier years before the referendum, they certainly felt very excluded in the Catholic schools. So we probably would have a larger proportion of LBGT teachers than would be the norm because you began to see, you know, more and more of them applying to the Educate Together schools where they felt they wouldn't stand out in the same way and that they were totally respected. So, yes, the numbers, I mean, at the moment, once the schools are set up, the demand for almost all of them far exceeds the number of places that are available. And that's true, although there are over 100 schools now in the country as a whole. Still only 100 schools, of course, out of 3,000, you see. It's still not providing anything like numbers of places that are required for people who no longer especially get married in church. I mean, nearly, what is it, 40% of marriages now are not being held in church, but their children in turn are, you know, their families are no longer mainstream Catholic families, but they have no choice in many parts of the country but to send their children to Catholic schools. So while the Catholic Church does still play a huge role in education, as Onya's highlighted, it has quickly lost its grip over the education of all Irish children, and a lens has firmly been placed on the scandals. The public clearly wanted to learn more about exactly what was happening behind closed doors. And one of the biggest accusations against the church has come in the form of women speaking out against the Magdalene laundries they were imprisoned and abused in. These laundries were effectively operated as penitentiary workhouses. The strict regimes in these institutions were often more severe than those found in actual prisons, and they were housed by quote-unquote fallen women. Now, this term implies female sexual promiscuity or sex work, young women who became pregnant outside of marriage, but it also extends to young girls and teenagers who did not have any family support. The Forgotten Maggies is the only Irish-made documentary on the subject, and it was made by Irish filmmaker Stephen O'Reardon. I remember when we submitted the documentary to the Galway Film Festival in Ireland, 
And up to that point, and still to this day, there's been no feature-length documentary made about the lives of the women that worked in the Mag Laundry from an Irish perspective. And there was a lot of talk about it and about what the women had suffered and what they had endured. But the difficulty that came then was, well, how do you follow up the success of this launch of these women's stories in a documentary? and bring it to wider international, I suppose, recognition. So there was always a plan in my mind as to once the documentary came out, well, how do we kick into action in terms of having a campaign? So going to New York, screening in New York, start that process. And what we found then was that more women started coming forward. And as they came forward, I then secured screenings for the documentary in every county that had a Magdalene laundry. I suppose the one thing that I realized is that not many of these women traveled, they weren't driving, they weren't able to get to the location maybe where I was living, you know, so they were quite secluded. And therefore, by having a screening of a documentary in their county, it allowed them to attend the screening. And I always remember Marina Gambold, who attended the one in Dungarvan and We'd done the screening and there was a great reaction. And then out of nowhere, she just burst through the doors, absolutely bawling, crying. I was one of those women. I'm a Magdalene girl. And I just couldn't believe like that the power of the stories that obviously everyone had witnessed obviously compelled her to basically come forward and say, I want to tell my story. I want to be part of your campaign. I want to get justice for what I suffered. Tell me about what happened when the women were due to meet with the Irish government. They had said that they didn't really want the media to know about it, that the women would be meeting privately, you know, with the minister and with the assistant secretary generals and all that. And I thought that was a bit strange. So that really generated like huge interest from the media because they were like, but why would you have to keep a meeting with the Department of Justice quiet and why would these women not have an opportunity to tell the media or whatever, speak to the media? I think that was more of a tick box exercise for the Department of Justice at that time in 2009. It resulted then in other women coming forward saying that they wanted to tell me their story. And so that's then when I suppose we decided to set up the Magdalene Survivors Together, which was really about elevating the voice of the women and allowing the women to take control of the campaign that they wanted to create. Like originally, the women's intention was to get, a, we call it a state apology from the T-shirt or the prime minister, depending on what country you're in. We gathered all the records in terms of how it was connected to the state or the state's connection to the Magdalene Laundries. We tried to underpin that then on a constitutional basis. Then we looked at all the different pieces of legislation in terms of human rights, the equality around human rights. And then we hired a solicitor, uh, Frank Buttermore Solicitors in Cork, to begin the process of looking at potentially taking a case against the state. Government then set up a kind of a cross-party committee to see if there was any state interaction or state collusion with the church, realising that their stories weren't going to go away or the women weren't going to go away. How did you feel when the women received their apology? I am just so happy that I met a group of powerful women that were able to open up my mind and my understanding of what Ireland represented. And it wasn't the Cade Mila Faultia, you know, the how are you, the Irish dancing, the river dance around the world and this arms wide open. And I'd like to think that the women 
who secured the apology for the Magdalene laundries played their part in dismantling, I suppose, that control that the Catholic Church had. There was a group of women aged between 56 and 85, and they got the entire world to listen to their story. And when the Taoiseach gives the apology in February 2013, those women emerge out from the doll, which is kind of similar to obviously House of Parliament in London, so where everyone is governing. And they start throwing their hands up in the air and they said, we did it, we did it. And I always remember the flash of cameras coming from outside in to us. And one journalist just shouting, step into the light. We can't see you. Step into the light. And I just love the context of these women emerging from the dark and stepping into the light and showing the world that they had achieved something that they were told they would never do in the first place. So with all of these stories now being given an international platform, many young Irish people were learning of generations of abuse at the hands of the church for the first time. I'll never forget learning about the Magdalene laundries and the mother and baby homes where unwed women were sent to deliver their babies. These babies were then often sold for adoption by the Catholic Church. Someone else who wanted to highlight these atrocities is Wallace Hamilton Felton, an Irish actress and playwright whose play on this subject, Dirty Laundry, premiered in London in 2018. So I wanted to know how these stories resonated with a UK audience. It always annoys me. I'm always frustrated that it took leaving Ireland to discover how little people know about it. I specifically had it put in the program. This is a non-fictional story. Obviously, parts were fictional, but it's based on truth. It's based on fact. And yet people were still asking me, you know, how could I come up with such a dark thing? I'm like, this, this isn't, this is real. The last laundry closed in 1996. I was two years old. And when I say that to people, it's just disbelief. It's pure disbelief. We're still battling just to have our voices heard in the UK, let alone on a world stage. It was almost insulting to have people say to me, how can you come up with such a story? Because it's so infuriating that our closest neighbour still is unaware of the tragedies that were happening. How much of an effect do you think this has had on society? I mean, you've been very open about the fact that you still have faith yourself. The Catholic Church has done some shameful things and you can see it in the decline of people that actively call themselves Catholic, particularly in Ireland. But interestingly, I think people's relationship with their faith has not declined. It's maybe just how they practice their faith. Some people might think I'm very hypocritical to speak so strongly against the Catholic Church. I was raised Church of Ireland. I think as an Irish woman, I have every right to be engaged in this conversation. When repeal the 8th happened, I had lost my right to vote. I'd been living out of Ireland too long to have a right to vote in a referendum. And I called my grandmother and I said, are you going to vote? And she is a very religious woman. And she said that she really didn't think she'd be able to. And I said, well, how about instead of abstaining, you vote in the way I would vote? And at the age of 87, she went to that ballot and she voted, yes, repeal the eighth for me. And it's moments like that that do restore my faith. So as challenged as it has been, I would say I am still a woman of faith. I do still believe in God. And it's upsetting when you consider all the things the Catholic Church has done, that people have lost faith because of the actions of an institution rather than the beliefs of the institution. And that more specifically, 
women have been repressed in the name of God, because my God doesn't believe in that. As an Irish woman, how do you feel about the legacy that the church has left? It's hard. It's hard. I just spent the last year in Ireland and, for example, I've been with my partner for seven years and almost everyone over the age of 50 that has known me for a particular amount of time was asked me, when are you going to have kids? When are you getting married? When are you having kids? And it's, we're still clinging to that for some very strange reason. You know, we're still thinking that that is how it is. And actually, when you think of the um, portrayal of Irish women, Mrs. Brown's boys, you know, the Irish mammy, that is the most famous image the international stage has of women in Ireland. It's just not realistic anymore. We're still forcing the idea, particularly of motherhood on women. And I am so fed up of it. Like I am a young woman who may not want to have children at this moment in time. I don't want them. So things, things are still hard there. Yeah. I think we've come a long way, but there's still way more to go. I mean, we've never even had a woman lead our government. Do you know what I mean? Like, for example, if we're going to talk about women in Ireland in 2021, for the first time ever, we had a practicing minister become pregnant. And then we discovered in our constitution that our politicians have to be available 24 seven and therefore she wasn't legally allowed to take maternity leave. Like we still have so far to go. I think a part of it will probably always be there because it was literally written into our constitution and it is therefore always going to be creeping into the way people in Ireland live their lives. It was written into our laws. You cannot walk up O'Connell Street, which is one of our biggest streets in Dublin, without passing several statues of the Virgin Mary. It's ingrained in the way we function as a society. I think, yes, we have legalized abortion. No, it is still not talked about. It's still taboo. We fought so hard to pass that law. And now what's actually happened? Like, I know, I know you can access it, but it doesn't seem to be readily available. The contraceptive pill. It's still very expensive in Ireland. And, you know, that needs to be reviewed. And I would say that's partially to do with Catholic influence. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in, it's in the schools. As much as Ireland progresses, that will always be the case. And Rory, I'm sure you've even had it when people go, oh, you're Irish, you're Catholic, you drink. It's a stereotype. We drink and we're Catholic. And no matter what we do to break away from that, I actually think, We've gone too far now that it, it's just part of our heritage intertwined one and the other. We'll look at just how difficult it is for Irish women to shake those stereotypes and access abortion in just a moment. But I first want to speak to Patrick Kelleher, a writer who closely followed the same-sex marriage referendum. I wanted to start by asking Patrick why such an overwhelming majority of the Irish public rejected traditional values and said yes to marriage equality. The referendum was a game changer in all regards. It essentially meant that we exploded into the mainstream very suddenly without really any warning. Most people knew gay people existed. Most people were aware that we were there, but people weren't really aware of what it meant to be gay. They weren't really too interested, I don't think. So I think that what happened with marriage equality was a process that really began probably about 25 years earlier when we saw some of those first really horrific child sex abuse scandals coming out from the Catholic Church in Ireland. 
I saw it among my own loved ones, for example, in, in the years leading up to the referendum. By the time the marriage equality referendum came about in 2015, a lot of people who would have previously considered themselves very, very religious and very devout and very, uh, I suppose, invested within the Catholic Church were prepared to start questioning what they were saying. So how much of an influence do you think the church actually had on how people voted in the referendum? Mm, that's an interesting question. And I think it's it's probably one that's hard to actually answer completely truthfully. I suppose the main way the Catholic Church were campaigning was through mass and through the media. The Catholic Church got an awful lot of airtime in this debate because the Catholic Church really felt incredibly threatened by the idea of same-sex marriage. You know, even at Christmas Eve mass, we were treated to a speech from the priest about how the referendum had threatened our way of life and about how the referendum had damaged the institution of marriage. You know, that the congregation was not receptive to it, I should say. I suppose when it comes to Christmas Eve Mass, as a lot of people will know, probably most people there aren't regular Mass goers. They're the people who check in once a year. And I think that even amongst the congregation there, you could feel that people were inclined to think, no, this is over now, let's move on. You live in Roscommon, which is the only county where there were more no votes than yes votes. So can you take me into how you felt when you heard that result and why you think that actually happened? The day of the vote count after the referendum was a very strange one for me. I was in Roscommon back at my parents' house watching it all unfold. I think understandably people felt very angry that Roscommon had kind of let the side down. We were the county that failed to pass the referendum only by a small margin, but it didn't look great on, on the map on RTE when the whole country was green and then we have this big red blob where Roscommon is. There were some groups such as Mothers and Fathers Matter who quite successfully did manage to complicate the question. So people thought they were being asked should gay people be allowed to be parents? They were actually being asked, should gay people be allowed to marry? Um, so I think that that was one aspect of it, that people were just a little bit confused about exactly what was going on. But also the fact of the matter is that Roscommon has an older population, a population that would be quite invested in the church. I think that they would have been hearing quite negative views about gay people in their local churches, for example. In terms of where things have gone since, I think that the county has come on a lot. I think that we've gotten so much better. The church's influence is waning all the time here. I know very few people who would be regular mass goers. I mean, very, very few people. I think now the problem when it comes to intense homophobia and transphobia is the far right. They're the, the real threat. With greater representation and legal protection for LGBTQ people in Ireland now widely accepted, it does seem the remaining fight against the church lies with Irish women. Sexism and misogyny within the church are still rife and accessing abortion still proves difficult, despite its recent legalisation. So what exactly is the church's history with policing women's bodies? And how far do we need to go to remove this control? To answer those questions, I spoke with writer Kayleen Hogan. There was the case of Noel Brown, who tried to introduce free healthcare for mothers and children in the 1950s in Ireland. And the church was very strongly opposed to it. They thought that it would interfere with their authority over the institution of the family and that it might give women access to information on reproductive health care. 
the Eighth Amendment was introduced in Ireland in the 1980s. The church was heavily involved in promoting this constitutional ban on abortion effectively. And campaigners, women, you know, when, when you would go to, to Marches for Choice in Dublin, you'd speak to women who had been campaigning since the 1980s and would have remembered that referendum and the influence of the church. Priests and nuns out campaigning to promote this ban on abortion in Ireland that went on to make such a chilling environment for doctors and healthcare workers to operate in that even when a woman's life was at risk or in danger, women were denied basic healthcare or even access to abortion when their life was at, at risk. You've written a book called The Republic of Shame, which discusses many of the issues we're speaking about in this podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about what you learned from your research for that book? When I was writing the book, I went to the World Meeting of Families, which was in 2018, which was the same year that we voted to legalize abortion in Ireland, but also the same year that the Pope visited. I remember speaking with Bishop Kevin Doran, who would have been involved when he was a priest in crisis pregnancy agencies that operated in this country. There were many crisis pregnancy agencies set up by Catholic priests and by the Bishop's Council as well. The church's influence has been very strong throughout. In fact, the mother and baby home institution that operated for the longest in Ireland called the Castle, it was near the border with Northern Ireland and that operated until 2006 in this country. So until 2006, there were women being sent to an institution, to a mother and baby home for being pregnant outside of wedlock. But that institution was in many ways set up to prevent women traveling for abortion. During the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment, there was actually a priest who wrote in, I think, to a local newspaper and suggested that mother and baby homes could be brought back as an alternative to abortion. Bishop Kevin Doran, I told him about this story and he entertained the idea of these institutions coming back and said, well, if they did, they'd need to be a little more supportive or something along those lines. That he would entertain the idea of these institutions returning shows, I think, the ignorance of the impact that these institutions continue to have on so many lives. Tell us where we're at now in terms of Irish women seeking abortion in Ireland. Some of the biggest private healthcare groups are run by religious orders. You have the Bon Secours that, of course, ran Tume, the Tume Institution, where more than 800 children died. They're running a, a massive private healthcare group in this country, as are the Sisters of Charity, which run St. Vincent's and, and which the state is handing over our new national maternity hospital to. I think there's a sense in Ireland that the church gave us our education, gave us our healthcare system. And I think it's really important to remember that the institutions that the Catholic Church operated in Ireland were often built through public money, whether it was raised in parishes, you know, whether it was demanded from people going to mass or whether it was government funding as well. And we've seen from the protests against the religious influence over the new National Maternity Hospital that, you know, people want change. They're not happy with the church dictating social policy in this country anymore or having an influence over those services. While the Irish public may no longer want the Catholic Church's influence, what I've concluded is that it's impossible to escape. Whether it's a woman being blocked from terminating her pregnancy due to her local healthcare centre being run by religious orders, somebody struggling to come to terms with their sexuality due to years of the church telling people it's wrong to be LGBTQ, 
or the countless individuals who were abused and shamed and had their children taken away by those running the Magdalene laundries and mother and baby homes. The church has left a legacy that can't be undone. But the overwhelming feeling I'm left with from everybody I've spoken to is that this abuse is also what led the walls to cave in so rapidly. Over the last decade, the social change we've seen in Ireland has been unprecedented and it's showing no signs of slowing down. But the church will always have a firm grip on society. For a country that was once living on a prayer, the tables have well and truly turned. And while the Catholic Church's legacy still remains, when it comes to influence, they don't have a prayer. <laughs>